Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. In the last episode we saw the increased militarization of Irish society following the formation of the Irish Volunteers and the Ulster Volunteers. We also tried to get to grips with the Unionists as an important pillar of Irish society that is too often left out of the 1916 story. Moving forward then to assess Irish nationalists, we examined the transformation in the character of Patrick Pearce, arguably 1916's most recognisable figure, In this episode, we are not going to focus on the extremist end of Ireland, per se, but examine instead the earthquake caused by the First World War in Irish society, and the resulting conflicts, divisions, and tensions it caused. If that sounds good to you, then let's begin. Welcome to the miniseries. When Diplomacy Fails presents... 1916 A special centenary miniseries exploring the context, characters and controversies of the most significant act in Ireland's modern history The 1916 Rising As to what your work as an Irish nationalist is to be, I cannot conjecture. I know what mine is to be, and would have you know yours and buckle yourselves to it. And it may be, nay, it is, that yours and mine will lead us to a common meeting place, and that on a certain day we shall stand together, with many more beside us, ready for a greater adventure than any of us has had yet, a trial and a triumph to be endured and achieved in common. Patrick Pierce writing in an article, The Coming Revolution, for Enclave Solish, November 1913. You may be quite certain that these men are not going to fight with dummy muskets. They are going to use modern rifles and ammunition, and they are being taught to shoot. If the men will only hold them straight, there won't be many nationalists left to stand up against them. Unionist MP Colonel Hackman, speaking about the recently established Ulster Volunteer Force, Late 1913. I told him with great difficulty I had prevented our ammunition from being distributed, though the men were clamouring for it, and that if he made any further move against us, it would be distributed at once. I pointed out that this would mean many men would be killed and wounded on both sides and that the responsibility would be entirely his. This finished what was left of Mr. Harrell's resolution. 
Irish volunteer leader Bulmer Hobson, describing the attempts of Dublin's Assistant Commissioner of Police to disarm his men after the Hoth gun running, June 1914. As 1914 dawned, Ireland appeared to be sliding towards the precipice of civil war. On one side stood the Irish Volunteers, a militia-type organisation determined to protect the integrity of the Home Rule Bill and ensure its passing over the coming months. On the other stood the Ulster Volunteer Force, an organisation of the same style as the nationalist equivalent, but professing very different goals. The UVF planned to prevent the passing of Home Rule by force if necessary, and sought to defend its own status as a Protestant, industrial, distinct enclave of Ireland that could not be forced to join with the Catholic, rural, ethnically Irish South. Many in the north of the island considered themselves Irish, but to protect this status they believed that maintaining the current union with Britain was critical. Home Rule, Unionists believed, would jeopardise their way of life as citizens loyal to the Crown. They feared that their influence as Protestant Royalist citizens in a united, nationalist, Catholic Ireland would be diluted to zero, and it was for these reasons, economic, ethnic, social, religious, that the Unionists acted. The 1911 Parliament Act was the critical event in British and Irish history that enabled nationalists to dream and Unionists to dread since for so long the House of Lords, filled as it was with conservative Unionist sympathisers and wealthy Ulster magnates, had foiled any attempts to push Home Rule through in either 1886 or 1893. The 1911 Act neutered the Lords' influence by removing their absolute veto and replacing it with a veto that effectively could only be used twice and would only serve to postpone the inevitable. Thus, when the Home Rule Bill was first posed by Herbert Asquith's Liberal government in 1912, there was little expectation that it would pass. What was expected instead by both Unionist and Nationalist alike was the possibility that the Home Rule Bill would be delayed until the spring or summer of 1914, whereupon it would then be presented to the House of Commons once again, before being placed on the statute books and becoming law. Time, in other words, was in short supply for Unionists, who were fighting against the very legislative processes of the kingdom that they professed their loyal support to. In the previous years, the Unionists had not professed a collective desire to use force to defend their homes or way of life, and to a man they did not support the Ulster Volunteer Force, but enough support or at least sympathy for what the UVF stood for meant that, in a pinch, Ulster would be largely united should it come to blows. The previous years had shown that one Dublin man, Sir Edward Carson, could capture the fears and ambitions of Unionists far better than any London politician had, and soon Carson had helped unify the divided elements of Unionist society, where men differed in opinion over class, creed, the necessity in utilising the support of the opposite sex, favouritism of the Orange Order, or the need for violence. Carson's force of personality helped reinvigorate Unionist society behind a common goal, opposing Home Rule. 
By early 1914, though, it seemed as though the tension was bound to increase. Nationalists within Ireland had professed the aim of home rule for as long as Daniel O'Connell had delivered oratorical feats in their name in the House of Commons. That was late in the 1840s, a generation after the Act of Union had tied Ireland to Great Britain and the Parliament of Dublin had been closed. The reversal of this closing and the road towards further legislative independence in time was a goal that all nationalists held close to heart. They took solace from the strides that Irish culture had enjoyed in the previous years, as organisations like the Gaelic League encouraged the Irish language, while the Gaelic Athletic Association encouraged Irish sport. Playwrights such as W.B. Yeats had helped found the Abbey Theatre at the beginning of the 20th century, paving the way for showcases of Irish drama, where the events of Irish history were reenacted, and the people were encouraged to take part. This grassroots cultural movement had been greatly aided by the agricultural and rural movements, which helped push through incredible change in the space of a generation in Irish society, wherein the landlord system, which had defined Ireland for centuries, suddenly disappeared, to be replaced with a system that aimed to empower the farmer and make Irish land the possession of the Irish farmer. It was romantic, it was ambitious, and it was greatly complemented by the phenomenal work of a number of Irish MPs, men like William O'Brien, Charles Stuart Parnell and Michael Davitt, two of whom were long dead by 1914, but whose imprint on Irish society and culture cannot be understated. The legacy that these men left behind and continued to promote, and its impact on nationalist ideology, meant that for men like John Redmond, that led the Irish Parliamentary Party and had done so since 1900, it was not too fanciful an idea to imagine that constitutional politics could work now, just as it had worked in the past. Home rule was perhaps the biggest prize of all, and it had eluded every single Irish MP since its inception as an idea. Catholic emancipation under O'Connell, or land reform under Parnell, had not borne witness to the creation of paramilitary organisations for and against the measure, so Home Rule clearly represented a step too far for some on the island. Whereas Catholic emancipation may have worried the traditionalists in government who looked at British security and demanded that no Catholic could be a loyal subject, Unionists as a pillar of Ireland had apparently declared as one that Home Rule was unacceptable. Whereas landlords and conservative landowners had fought an unsuccessful campaign of pressure against those that sought to reform how land was ruled and parceled out, unionists now had an unofficial military arm that could be used to enforce their own position against home rule. John Redmond, in other words, may have taken solace in the fact that politics had steered Ireland right before but Home Rule was clearly on another level to the reforms Ireland had seen passed in the 19th century. If he wanted to ensure its passing in 1914 without ripping his homeland apart, he would have to use all of his wiles and strengths as an Irishman. But there was a problem. At the centre of the tension between nationalist and unionist lay a chasm of misunderstanding about each camp's fears, ambitions and beliefs. It was very easy to resent the pillar on either side of Ireland rather than seek to understand them, and the loaded rhetoric certainly did not help to ease what was becoming 
an intolerable situation, according to London, by spring 1914. Far from focusing on events in the Balkans or in Germany, as some narratives have sought to portray, London's eyes were squarely focused upon Ireland and what would happen next. This was answered in late April, when the so-called Larne gun running occurred, and 25,000 German rifles with 3 million rounds of ammunition were landed in County Antrim of Ulster in support of the Unionist militias there. It was a serious step towards escalation, particularly when nerves were fraying as the clock ticked towards home rule. If the Unionists wished to make a stand against the implementation of home rule, they would surely now be equipped to do so, and what could the British, or for that matter the Nationalists, do to stop them? In the case of the former, it was already well known that London was unable to control even its own soldiers, for in March 1914 nearly 60 British officers, billeted in a barracks just south of Ulster, ruled that they would resign their commands rather than force any Unionists to take part in home rule. Although the officers involved in this incident were assured that nothing of the sort would occur, rumours spread in such a way afterwards that both Nationalist and Unionist could find offence. To the Nationalist, this was proof of Britain's pro-Unionist conspiracy, which was never far away, and they feared for the integrity of British soldiers who would be expected to ensure that Home Rule was enacted. To the Unionists, on the other hand, the event was seen as proof that London did want to use British soldiers to impose Home Rule on them. The result being, both sides hardened their stances. In May 1914, the nationalist equivalent of the Larne gun running occurred in Hoth, as well as a number of places along the east coast of Ireland, including Kilcool, where I live, and a plaque is erected there, which I'm not sure how I feel about. 1,500 rifles and 45,000 rounds of ammunition were landed. A paltry number compared to the Unionists, but an important statement of defiance nonetheless. What the Hoth gun running had going for it was its complete separation from anything to do with the Fenians or the Irish Republican Brotherhood. The fringe Republican organisation did not have a role to play in procuring the guns that the Irish volunteers sought to use to defend home rule. Instead, the guns were acquired by interested parties and citizens. It is here that Sir Roger Caseman's name, in correlation with the Irish story, begins to pop up, and it won't be the last time. We will get to him soon. What the Nationalists did here was very interesting in another sense, because to men like John Redmond of the Irish Parliamentary Party, who had been cautiously watching how things were going down for the past few years, the actions of the British seemed especially unfair. When the Unionists had landed guns in Larne, they had been unopposed, and had hosted a public parade of sorts to celebrate their bountiful receipt of arms afterwards. When the Nationalists went about orchestrating Hoth, though, they had to do it in utter secrecy. Even after the event, the guns were smuggled through people's carts or cars, carried in bags of potatoes, or concealed through other means. The Nationalists had to behave in this way because the British authorities were under orders to confiscate any arms they found on the Nationalists. Two MPs in the Irish Parliamentary Party, as well as the rank and file in the Irish Volunteers then, it seemed like one rule for the Unionists and another rule for everyone else. Despite the ill omens, though, nationalists would have to contend that the political process seemed to be working. On the 24th of May 1914, 
the Home Rule Bill was finally passed in the House of Commons with a majority of 77. Though it was predictably rejected in the House of Lords for the third time, our good friend the 1911 Parliament Act was then invoked to bypass that House's defiance. King George V is seen by many historians as a hibernophile, meaning he had romantic ideas about Ireland and how it worked. George's ideas about Ireland likely came from his limited military experience when he was posted there as a young lad, but above all the king's interests lay in an underrated concern for keeping Ireland happy. George recognised that the majority had voted for Home Rule, and with the Parliament Act now law, he wasn't about to pander to the House of Lords, even if he had disagreed with the Home Rule Bill on any grounds, which he did not anyway. The significance of the passing of this Home Rule Bill really should be emphasised, guys. It really was the biggest thing to happen, legislatively speaking, since Irish politics began. It was definitely the most incredible act since the Act of Union over a century before. If the entire narrative of this miniseries was only about Home Rule, I could stop here after spouting some triumphant rhetoric and claim that John Redmond had achieved his life's work and went on to live a happy life, but... This miniseries is not about that, and the reason why so few people actually realise today that Home Rule was a temporary reality in Ireland in 1914 is because of what occurred almost immediately afterwards, the First World War. Had the war not interrupted the perfect predictability of the British legislative procedure, then Home Rule may have simply become law when it was presented on the statute books in September 1914. Instead, it was acknowledged that to try and undertake the kind of change that Home Rule would mean for Ireland at a time when Britain was in the early throes of a very costly war would mean bad things for British organisation and unity. So Home Rule was postponed on the understanding that, following the war, it would be enacted again. It was the closest Ireland would ever come to de jure unity again. It would be far too simplistic, of course, to present the war as the reason for Home Rule's postponement, though. The whole reason why implementing Home Rule was so awash with complications was because it was well known once the bill had passed that the Unionists would never accept it, and that London could not force an apparently loyal segment of its population to participate in the first experiment in devolved government that the British Isles had ever seen. British officers had already publicly resigned their commands rather than be potentially in a position to coerce Unionists into supporting Home Rule, and the possibility was already very much present in the minds of men like Edward Carson, whose apocalyptic rhetoric, as Dermot Ferreter called it, added further tension to the situation. Both sides had apparently been militarised and dug their heels in following their respective gun runnings, But this only made the need for compromise more urgent, since the eruption of civil war had been made more possible by the arrival of so many weapons on the island. Almost certainly, the autumn period where business would be dealt with in Parliament and legislation on the statute books would be turned into law would be the spark that lit the match of that civil war, in my opinion and in the opinion of most historians at least. Either that or the British government would have to come to some kind of compromise in the meantime whereby the Nationalists and Unionists could get the majority of what they wanted without having to resort to arms. This is a debate I will spend more time on in the future, since I don't want to interrupt the narrative too much with my theories for the moment, but 
Needless to say, the war ended any realistic chance to debate or for reconciliation to take place. The war had begun, and it was soon to dominate the Irish discourse. It was during this period that a defining idea or solution to this nationalist-unionist problem, partition, began to gain more traction. Partition was the acceptance of the fact that unionists and nationalists harboured very different ideas about how Ireland should be governed and that these ideas were mostly incompatible. Rather than force either side into an agreement neither wanted, partition stated that unionists would have the region where they were most in abundance, in the north, while nationalists would have the rest of the island. This was the rough idea going forward, but Partition was in many ways the dirty word of the negotiations for both sides of the Buckingham Conference of July 1914 that had set about solving Ireland's inherent problems. It was through invitation largely from the office of King George V that both sides agreed to meet together for the first time since the unofficial conflict had begun. Over the years, both nationalists and unionists had slandered, agitated against and blatantly failed to understand one another. But the Buckingham Palace Conference sought to end this tradition. By getting both sides together and getting them to air their grievances in this body, in my mind the meeting took the form of a marriage counselling between the Irish husband and wife of unionism and nationalism. From the 21st to the 24th of July 1914, Prime Minister Herbert Asquith, David Lloyd George, Edward Carson, John Redmond, and others debated and listened while the concerns of both sides were raised. The Speaker of the House of Commons presided over the talks, a fact which should demonstrate that Britain was beginning to take the matter a bit more seriously than it had in the past. In the end, though, a solution wasn't forthcoming, but both did claim in the weeks that followed that it had enabled them to see the other side in a different light and perhaps even understand the other a little better. If they did understand their opponent, though, this didn't seem to make the desire for compromise any greater on either side. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. As volunteers in Ulster and the South continued to drill and march out in the open, and as the British authorities recognised that it would be a better policy to simply allow them to do so, rather than forcing either side to disarm and making the situation worse, events in Europe were slowly turning London's gaze away from the events of the Buckingham Palace Conference and towards a recently delivered ultimatum to Serbia by the Austrian Empire. Thus began the first of many steps towards the First World War. In the space of a week, from the 27th of July till the 3rd of August 1914, the international situation grew far more grave, and by the following day on the 4th of August, Britain had declared war on Germany. Ireland, by default of its partnership with Great Britain, was now at war also. Before any meaningful solution to the crisis in Ireland had been found then, war had pulled both sides away from the issue of home rule. With a war raging, home rule and all of the changes and ripples it would bring to Ireland seemed in doubt, at least until the war was over. It was hard to predict exactly how either the militarised unionists or nationalists would react if in September 1914 home rule was enacted. Would the unionists still move to oppose the change by force, even though their master was involved in a costly war? Would the nationalists demand it as their right and hold London to ransom with a hostile militia until home rule became law? Would partition be avoided as nationalists and unionists elected to fight side by side against a common enemy and spurn their own personal differences for the greater good? To save the outcome of such debates, it was decided in late August 1914, as we saw, to postpone home rule, at least for a period of a year, but realistically until the war was over. With Home Rule apparently on the back burner, both nationalist and unionist alike now began to weigh in on the debate for Irish involvement in the war against the Central Powers. In Irish history, there is a famous image of John Redmond making a speech in Woodenbridge, County Wicklow, just south of Dublin, in which he urges Irish men to join the British in defeating the Central Powers. During the speech, Redmond said, The interests of Ireland, of the whole of Ireland, are at stake in this war. This war is undertaken in the defence of the highest principles of religion and morality and right, and it would be a disgrace forever to our country and a reproach to her manhood and a denial of the lessons of her history if young Ireland confined their efforts to remaining at home to defend the shores of Ireland from an unlikely invasion, and to shrinking from the duty of proving on the field of battle that gallantry and courage, which has distinguished our race all through its history. I say to you, therefore, your duty is twofold. I am glad to see such magnificent material for soldiers around me. And I say to you, go on drilling, and make yourselves efficient for the work, and then account yourselves as men, not only for Ireland itself, but wherever the fighting extends. 
in defence of right, of freedom and religion in this war. This is an image today which is infamous or significant depending on who you ask. Some believe that John Redmond's claim regarding home rule and London's promise to implement it once the Irish helped Britain's war effort was misleading, ignorant and naive in the extreme. Others believe that Redmond's actions persuaded a vast amount of Irishmen to join the Imperial Armed Forces, an experience from which many would not return. This belief would place condemnation on Redmond for leading thousands of Irish to their deaths. Still, there are others who place Redmond's speech and his actions in the circumstances of the time. John Redmond, like many others, believed the war would be a short one and that the British government would win and would thus, after, have to implement home rule once it was concluded, since they had committed themselves to doing so, legislatively if nothing else, in the years before. It would be fair to say that John Redmond, as a figure of Irish nationalist politics today, is generally viewed negatively by Irish contemporary opinion. Either as a man who couldn't see the writing on the wall with respect to how Britain would react after the First World War with home rule, he's also accused of not sensing which way the wind was blowing with respect to what the Irish people actually wanted. The post-revisionist school have liked to portray Redmond as a British Empire sympathiser who held an unrealistic vision for Ireland that was based on his visits to Australia and America where no such societal divisions between Unionist and Nationalist existed. He could certainly be accused of not being willing or able to understand or accept Unionist ideology as a separate pillar of Irish identity or to see Unionism as a belief system which was just as genuine and legitimate as that of the nationalists. And he seems instead to have viewed the whole thing as either a response to what the nationalists were doing or wanted, or as a passing phase that Protestants in the North were going through. Yet, this accusation can also be levelled at some of his nationalist colleagues, many of whom still held their seats from the elections of the late 19th century thanks to the land reform issue, and were devoid of the kind of charisma and energy that the Irish Parliamentary Party required. Redmond himself has been painted as a bland individual incapable of gathering nationalists and unionists together as one, and some historians on the more extreme side of the spectrum like to speculate that if he had only been more understanding in the years before with his dealings with unionists, Sir Edward Carson would never have been able to capitalise on those unionists' fears and further divide the island. John Redmond, as you may have guessed, is the scapegoat for many an Irish historian who do not wish to delve into the more complex problems that 1914 Ireland posed, and instead want to find a skeleton key figure like Redmond, who can fit into every problem keyhole and unlock every problem door that Ireland's history presents. It is important, it always is, to note what historians have said about him and why, but at the same time we are deluding ourselves if we think that anything as complex and multi-layered as Ireland's problems can be traced solely to the actions and beliefs of John Redmond. Just as surely as Edward Carson cannot be blamed for modern-day unionism, Redmond can't be blamed for sending Irishmen to their deaths in Flanders or Gallipoli, Redmond was under the impression that Britain would create an Irish army division out of the Irish volunteer regiments, since that would only make sense after all. 
He was under the impression that these same volunteers would account for themselves well as Irishmen and return home as heroes. He was under the impression that following such military training and the adulation of the Irish populace for their war heroes, nationalists would be made much stronger and better united to deal with any challenges that might arise, military or otherwise. He was under the impression that the war experience would prove to Unionists that nationalists could be trusted and relied upon as partners in the imperial experience that was going to be home rule. It is worth remembering that in the scenario of home rule, both unionists and nationalists would be seated in the same parliament in Dublin, and they would have to cooperate and coexist for actual political life in Ireland to continue. In John Redmond's mind, unionists had always made too much of their being outnumbered in a Dublin parliament. He believed that if they could only see what nationalists were truly like, then the qualms they had over serving with them through home rule would disappear. There is mileage in this belief system, it has to be said. Redmond did have a somewhat simplistic understanding of what Unionists wanted and feared, but he was correct when he asserted that they feared Home Rule, and that this was what continued to unite their formerly class-divided, belief-divided and ideologically divided society together. By assuring Unionists that their way of life would not be threatened, that their version of Ireland could be had along with the nationalist desires and that Ireland's partnership with Britain would not utterly change for the worse, Redmond could have significantly allayed Unionists' fears to the extent that in the next Buckingham Palace conference, things would have been very different. That this version of history did not play out, some historians attest, is because external events dragged Ireland away from its insular focus and forever changed the island. The other line of reasoning follows that John Redmond, having inhabited the post as the leader of Irish Parliamentary Party for nearly 15 years by 1914, with all that that meant, simply wasn't up to the task of persuading the Unionists that Home Rule was a good thing. It was Irish historian Joe Lee who posed the immortal question. What choice did Redmond have? Beggars can't be choosers and the bottom line was that Irish nationalism, of all varieties, had only words to wave in the face of British and Unionist guns. This is, in my view, a fairer analysis of events. Modern day Irish politicians can criticise, and they do, the actions of John Redmond in imploring young men to go and fight for Britain, but when doing so they fail to take account of two facts. Number one. What was the alternative? For two years, Ireland had been growing steadily more militant, and over the course of March to June 1914, Redmond had brought about the Irish Parliamentary Party's control of the Irish Volunteers, basically by ensuring that his party hierarchy had greater control over appointments to the militia's command structure. This act split opinion within the Volunteers at the time, since some wished to maintain their independence from the Irish Parliamentary Party altogether, but most went along with it as a way to cut off any extremists, and to ensure that the Volunteers did not split itself into less effective smaller groups. This didn't mean that Redmond spoke for the Volunteers when he implored them to fight for Britain, but it did mean that he was seen by those in the Unionist camp and in London as being in the position to speak for them. This perception is important, because had Redmond not advocated Irish participation in the war, accusations regarding his loyalty, his party's loyalty, and of course the volunteers' loyalty, would be quick in coming, 
This would have alienated everything Redmond presided over from both London and the Unionists, which, as Redmond appreciated, would reduce significantly the leverage that he had. Number two, it must be emphasised that while Redmond's speech was important when considering why Irish men joined up to fight for Britain, it was not the sole motivating factor. Far from it, in fact. As the perceived leader of Irish political nationalism, Redmond's endorsement of Irishmen going to Flanders was significant, and to many an Irish family it would have helped them reconcile the contradictions present in the act. Yet it must be remembered that far more people had been enraptured by the same course of events as the population in Britain, where the media had ridden a train of sympathy for small nations in the face of German aggression, and where the national honour argument continued to strike a chord with the Irish as well as British and Unionist readers. As Dermot Ferreter noted, Redmond was genuine in his belief that the war was one of good versus evil, but he was preaching to the converted. Irishmen were more than capable of applying their own moral myths and fantasies to what was going on in Europe. Small nations were doing it all across the continent. Observe the Poles in Germany, the Slovaks and Czechs in Austria-Hungary, the Indians in the British Empire, and so many others. I can only imagine who they chose as their scapegoats nowadays for sending men to fight for empires in 1914, but I'm sure that they, like us Irish, have them. Redmond may have made it more socially acceptable to fight for Britain, but he did not persuade his audience so much as assuage their fears about what fighting for Britain would look like. The difference is critical, for if we suggest that Irishmen were merely following the direction of their political betters, we take for granted the real and personal stories of experience that went on as war was declared, and we thus miss the rich stories of adventure, conflict and passion that can be found therein. Going back to our previous point, if modern-day politicians wish to criticise Redmond's stance, they first have to place themselves in his shoes at the time of war in autumn 1914, when the likes of Redmond and his colleagues were fed on the diet of clichés and misunderstanding about the First World War that we know of. The war would not be a short one. Ireland would not be allowed to have its own regional volunteer units take the form of British Empire battalions. The Irish would not be treated equally to their Unionist brethren throughout the war's duration. But Redmond did not know this in autumn 1914. He was doing the best he could with the information he had, and those that claim he should have or could have done far more may have a point, but it should be emphasised at the same time that he was a very small pawn in a very big game. Redmond realised from an early stage that far more could be gained on Britain's side than against it, or in neutrality in the coming war. It was far from a perfect situation, and he appreciated that it would distract his country from the constitutional progress that it needed, but to make the best of a chaotic situation, Redmond made the decision to put his faith in the same constitutional apparatus of the British Empire that had already brought Ireland numerous reforms in the past. It wasn't ideal, but Redmond could at least take solace in the fact that it was the most effective and significant thing that he could do. Of course, the war was far simpler as an event for the Unionists to rationalise. Edward Carson presented it as Unionism's chance to prove its loyalty to the Crown, and preparations for Unionist regiments, replete with their own insignias and marching songs, ensured that Carson's rank and file fitted neatly into the British establishment. 
Historian Gillian McIntosh noted on the Unionists that The province's Protestant combatants were mythologized, transformed into historic figures from the past as the war became a version of the Battle of the Boyne transferred to a time and a past which bore no resemblance to the reality of the First World War. McIntosh goes on to equate the threats of German aggression with that of home rule to the Unionists' way of life, threats which, ever since the first Home Rule Bill of 1886, Unionists had been agitating to defend against. In addition, McIntosh makes the point that Edward Carson's rhetoric about and attitude towards the Empire, which epitomised that of Unionists generally, like Redmond's, was complex, being both sincere and manipulative. And this is a point worth going back to from our analysis of Redmond earlier. As varied as the historical consensus on Redmond has been, we must remember that he wasn't doing all this for nothing. He kept Irish interests foremost in his mind, and like Carson he believed that these would be best served fighting alongside Britain. Redmond may have had less practical choice in the matter, but the truth rings the same for both men. McIntosh concluded, Both political camps expected the gratitude of the British administration for their willingness to sacrifice themselves on the rank and file of their parties. Neither foresaw that in the First World War, all special interests would be expendable. Indeed, while both looked upon the war initially as a chance to weigh in on the Empire's good side, in time they would come to see that conflict as a defining moment, not just in Ireland's history, but also in the history of the human race. But the war had another immediate effect on the unity of the Irish volunteers. Within days of Redmond's wooden bridge speech imploring the volunteers to get involved in the British war effort, for the sake of both the Empire and eventual Home Rule, a division within the Volunteers, one that they had so striven to avoid in the past, began to emerge. In a sense, this was due to the strange way that the Irish Volunteers had developed over the previous year. It had been constituted of great figures like Owen McNeill as its Chief of Staff and enjoyed popularity among members of Sinn Féin, the Gaelic League and the Ancient Order of Hibernians but at the same time an undercurrent of militarism was being cultivated within it, thanks to the Irish Republican Brotherhood's active infiltration of its rank and file. Before John Redmond had attempted to take control of the volunteers in the name of the Irish Parliamentary Party, placing a number of his colleagues on its committee in the process, the Irish volunteers had mostly empathised with Redmond's party and the idea of home rule. To some, the volunteers were a critical counterweight to the Ulster Unionists in the north, but few within the organisation professed a desire to wage a war against Britain. Owen MacNeill, for one, was adamant that to fight the British would be hopeless, but that the volunteers must not be suppressed or disarmed for the sake of Ireland's interest. He would defy any orders coming from London, in other words, should he learn that the British wished to disarm the group of which he was the chief of staff. It should go without saying that within a group close to 200,000 by summer 1914, differences were bound to occur. But the war, to some of the original hierarchy of the volunteers, would not be in Ireland's interests. Thus the division emerged, beginning in the minds of men like MacNeill who disproved of the war, and this division soon extended to the rank and file, manifesting itself in a split within weeks. 
In the event, a rump of Irish volunteers stayed behind and chose neutrality. Historians debate both the size of the original volunteers as well as the number of men who went on to fight for Britain. Roughly 10,000 men chose to stay neutral and continued to uphold the original tenants of the volunteers, drilling, marching, equipping and keeping an ear out for any news that would suggest Britain planned to disarm them or cancel out home rule. Owen MacNeill continued to lead this smaller group where he had once led the larger one, and he argued for Irish neutrality in the event of the war, since it was not Ireland's direct concern. A number of those that had stayed with him included the vast majority of Irish Republican Brotherhood men who had infiltrated its centre, which meant that the volunteers were suddenly much easier to infiltrate than they had been in the past. As a result, the Irish volunteers became steadily more radical within, and chasms began to exist between men like MacNeil and men like Patrick Pearce, who had also elected to stay behind. The newly rebranded National Volunteers was the larger force led ostensibly by John Redmond, whose brother, William, now went off to fight with Britain, armed with promises that when they returned, Ireland would greet them as heroes for the home rule they had successfully fought and died for. With all that had occurred over the past year, Redmond was understandably distracted from the rising storm underway in Ireland's native Fenian movement, the Irish Republican Brotherhood. It was among their extremist rank and file that revolution was plotted, as they took in vibrant new members and sought to apply their ambitions to the opportunities lent by the eruption of the war and the split in the Irish volunteers. Next time, we will see how their labours led in a confusing, contradictory and controversial road towards 1916. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.